thought I was going to have to get up and stop you for a minute here. <laughs> okay, well, this was really wonderful to have an invitation to be here today to talk to everybody. Um, and I'm going to tell you about some uh, work that we've done. Well, the whole story goes back um, probably at least a decade, but um, some new work that was. Um, published in the last uh, couple of months um, that we're very excited about. Uh, and this relates to the, um, how the nervous system and the immune system um, function together. And when I say adult neurogenesis depends on the immune system, the punchline of the talk, and that I will tell you right now, is that in crayfish, the uh, neural progenitors, the neural stem cells, are actually coming from the immune system. And this, for reasons I'll be talking to you about in a few minutes, um, is uh, really coming at kind of a pivotal moment in general because there's quite a bit of debate about the source of neural stem cells in uh, uh, vertebrate species, particularly mammals. So that's the punchline first. Um, and I wanted to start by talking um, a little bit about adult neurogenesis for those of you who may not realize that it happens. How many of you actually know that your brains are making new neurons all the time? Is that commonly known? Okay, the majority anyway. All right. Um, but it's not been that long that we've known this. Um, uh, this is a... a quote from Fred Gage um, from about a decade ago where he was commenting on the fact that uh, up until just a few years before this comment that people were not aware that adult neurogenesis really contributed in major ways to the way our brain functions. And um, so he was um, talking about the early dogma and the fact that certainly when I went to graduate school, when Joanne went to graduate school, we were trained um, that all of the neurons you'll ever have, uh, you have at birth, and it's basically downhill from there. And so um, this really changed the landscape significantly to find out that new neurons um, are born uh, in the adult brain. And what I want you to think about, because in fact there were data, really good data, that their new neurons are contributing to the hippocampus um, in rodent um, work that was done by Altman's lab in 1963. And it took decades for people to sit up and really pay attention and believe this. So why do you think there might have been this bias, just thinking about how nervous systems work? Why would there have been this bias against new neurons in a, in a mature brain? Anybody have an idea? Yeah. Yeah, so there are a lot of things about the way the brain works that um, wouldn't fit very well with this idea. Um, one of, the, one of these issues is that when we damage the central nervous system, a human, that we don't repair ourselves very well. We're getting better at figuring out how to promote repair, but um, if it were a simple process of just replacing the neurons, then we would probably be a lot better at it. Um, other ideas were that we think about all the stability in the nervous system, that all of us within a certain range have basically the same brain that has some of the same abilities, blah de blah And so um, uh, the idea of inserting new neurons into existing circuits or adding whole new circuits in felt like it would destabilize the brain. And so there were a lot of people that, that, that just felt that there, 
logically this couldn't be happening because we would have to interrupt processing in order to bring new neurons online. And then finally, the last three major reasons, there are others you could probably come up with, but the other um, reason that people argued against this idea was the fact that we know um, that when um, neuronal precursors go through the cell cycle, that when they become committed to a neural fate, they leave the cell cycle, go into G0, and they never back up. They never, don't come back into the cell cycle. So without our understanding that there are stem cells available to make the new neurons, um, uh, there was really no way to produce them because neurons can't produce neurons. Differentiated cells can't do that. And we had no understanding of the fact that there might be stem cells available in the brain that could be neuronal precursors. So there was a lot of, of pushback against the idea that there would be new neurons incorporated into the, um, into the adult brain. But now we know that, I, if I, unless I've missed something, all the vertebrates in which we've asked the question, all of them make new neurons in certain areas. Um, the most widely agreed upon areas are the hippocampus and the olfactory bulb. Um, it looks like the hypothalamus is going to be added to the list. The cortex is still being debated. Um, but the, the two primary areas where certainly the most rapid production of neurons and incorporation of neurons is the hippocampus and olfactory bulb. So it, it is happening in all the vertebrates that we've tested, we being the field of neuroscience, um, and in the majority of non-vertebrates. There are few, some insects that don't make them, but some of these insects are so short-lived that, um, that it may have something to do with that. So adult neurogenesis seems to be more the rule than the exception, all right? Um, it's not just something that happens in a few species. It seems to be there in most organisms. All right, um, so just for a, a, a definition we can agree on then, that neurogenesis um, basically refers to stem cells that reside in the adult brain um, that divide and differentiate to make neurons. The first evidence for neurogenesis in the human brain um, was in 1998, work done um, by Erickson and from Fred Gage's lab, um, where they showed the new neurogenesis in the hippocampus. All right, um, so the process of neurogenesis uh, involves several steps. And so the first of these is this, the division of the neural stem cells. And they divide just by regular old mitosis, same process you learned in grade school. Um, and when a stem cell divides, it will produce a neural precursor that usually goes through a few more divisions um, uh, on the way to becoming the daughters becoming neurons. The second cell from this division becomes a new stem cell, and this is called self-renewal. And part of the definition of a stem cell is that it will self-renew. So that what's been um, uh, hypothesized is that stem cells in, uh, in the brain have, are long-lived, um, people used to say even immortal, um, uh, as, as old as the, as the individual. I think people are backing off on that a bit. Um, they're talking about long-lived stem cells, and um, this is part of the issue that I'll be talking to you about today, because there's actually zero evidence for long-term uh, self-renewal in vivo. The definition of a stem cell was created largely based on work in vitro, and um, then those, the definition of, of having these stem cells last for years and years and years um, was really adopted for in vivo uh, purposes. But 
we know that cells can self-renew, but there's absolutely zero evidence that that happens long-term. So that's important as we go on. All right, so once the cells have, uh, the, the stem cell has divided, um, then this precursor, um, some of them die by a process of apoptosis, um, and a, it's very high um, percentage actually die. Some of them will become glial type cells and some will become neurons. On the way to becoming these neuronal cell types, the cell types, uh, the precursor cells will migrate to different regions. Um, it's a very short migration in the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus. Um, it's a very long migration to go from the subventricular zone where the olfactory bulb precursors are born all the way to the olfactory bulb, which is sort of right at the top of your nose, base of the brain. Um, and so this migration um, is something that, that happens. And then once the cells are in place, uh, either in the olfactory bulb or the dentate gyrus, uh, then they differentiate into neurons that are appropriate for those areas. All right, um, but <clears throat> the, there's a, a debate about the identity of the stem cells. Um, it's actually been a relatively quiet debate recently, but about 10 to 15 years ago, there was a huge flurry of papers um, about the relationship between the immune system in mammalian organisms and the nervous system. And um, one of the many papers uh, that related to this story uh, is this one with Eva Mesia as first author. She's the head of the Adult Stem Cell Unit at National Institute of Health, and the, the title tells it all. Um, transplanted bone marrow generates new neurons in human brains. And the, the backstory for this is that she did a retrospective study and there was a separate lab that um, did another very similar study. Um, in total, seven individuals uh, who had had bone marrow transplants. They were all females and they received bone marrow from males. And after death, um, in Eva's paper, um, she looked at four individuals. In the other study from the other lab, they looked at three more. In all cases, they had neurons in the hippocampus and the olfactory bulb that had a male genetic signature. So um, this was 2003, so over 10 years ago. Um, Eva almost lost her job over this at the NIH because it was so counter to um, uh, sort of what was going on in general, but there's also a pile of work done in mice and rats that suggests the same thing. Um, what, what basically the idea is, is that there are stem cells in bone marrow that can produce neurons. That I think nobody would argue with, that, that bone marrow stem cells do have the capacity to make neurons. Where the issue comes in is whether this is a natural process that happens all the time, or whether, um, whether this is something that's artificial uh, because we're, let's say, irradiating the person or the animal prior to the transplant, and irradiation can make the, the blood-brain barrier leaky. So that was one of the criticisms of the study. Um, there also have been um, other criticisms that the stem cells may be fusing with other cell types, and so they're adopting the neural fate by fusing with another cell. That was shown that it's possible that that can happen in culture. There was a long list of mostly technical kinds of questions um, that were very hard to address in the mammalian system. And finally, everything pretty much went quiet in about 2004. And now people are directing their efforts towards understanding how bone marrow stem cells may contribute to regeneration in the nervous system. 
but really aren't talking much about the possibility that the immune system is actually a source of neural stem cells everyday life in vivo. Okay, and that's where our work has come in. Um, it's important for a pile of reasons, I think, to get the discussion going, even if it's painful. Um, and the reason people don't like the idea, there's a few. One is that this idea of, of long-term self-renewal is very much ingrained in the literature. There are companies that built, are built on embryonic stem cells. There's a lot of corporate money behind the fact that, you, that it's hard to get stem cells. And if, in fact, they're being manufactured all the time, it changes the landscape um, in terms of um, uh, finance for a lot of these companies. Um, I think the other reason is that if we are to assume, believe, that cells from the immune system, bone marrow stem cells, are making neurons in vivo during everyday life, then that's, that's a major transdifferentiation step because immune cells are coming from the germ layer mesoderm, the nervous system comes from ectoderm, and this would represent a very major um, event that people still aren't sure about this idea that transdifferentiation occurs in vivo. So there really are these two big issues surrounding this, self-renewal and transdifferentiation, um, and a lot of of politics as well, I think. Um, anyway, so uh, we've been publishing sort of surrounding this area for years, and, and I have um, uh, colleagues who work in, in mammalian systems who would come to posters at SFN, at Society for Neuroscience Meeting, and say, you're so lucky to be working on crayfish, which is my model, because you can fly under the radar screen and you can publish this stuff without people. They just say, oh, that's weird. Um, and anyway, it turns out maybe it's not so weird. Um, and that, that what we are able to do is actually telling us something about ourselves. And that's, that's sort of where we are these days. So let me back up quite a bit, um, now that I've told you what the, the, the rub is, what the, the issues are here, and just tell you a little bit about the background, about um, the crustacean brain and um, how new neurons are produced in the adult brain. Um, so this is a lobster. We did work on lobsters at one point as well. Um, and uh, the brain of the lobster looks very different um, from our brain. Um, but it um, has areas that we can analogize with uh, uh, a mammalian brain. Um, the olfactory bulb would be the same as what we call the olfactory lobe here. It's the primary sensory processing area for olfactory inputs. Uh, and then there's the accessory lobe, which um, most people think is important in spatial guidance because a lot of these animals do long migrations um, and it seems to depend on accessory lobes. So this might be analogous functionally to a hippocampus. We aren't sure. But in any event, um, a lot of the same types of cells are found here that we would find in a mammalian brain. And when we started to look for new neurons, um, in uh, these crustacean brains, what we found is that there are two primary areas that incorporate new neurons. And, and both of these regions have projections into the olfactory system, same as the, some of the new neurons in the mammalian brain. And then they also project some of them into this accessory lobe. 
And the way we find them is to use a, a compound called bromodeoxyuridine, or BRDU. And BRDU is taken up by cells during S phase of the cell cycle. Um, that is when the parent DNA is being uh, synthesizing the daughter strands. And you may remember it's semi-conservative replication. And so the BRDU is incorporated, which means that uh, both daughters should get some of the BRDU once that cell goes through mitosis and divides. And so once taken up by cells, you can detect bromodeoxyuridine with antibodies against BRDU um, and using standard immunocytochemical methods. And so that's what we have done um, in uh, these brains, and this is what a cluster of new cells looks like. Um, okay. So this is, this is just a little caricature of the method reminding you about the daughter strands that are being formed here, parent strands unwind for the DNA, and every place where you have an adenine, um, the BRDU will stick, or in proportion to its concentration relative to thymidine. You may remember that adenine and thymidine are paired, and BRDU is, a, is an analog of thymidine. So it will stick to the new DNA, make the incorporated into the new DNA strands in the positions where you have adenines in the parent strand. And then um, you do immunocytochemistry and use antibodies that have visual markers, the little green blobs here. And usually we use fluorescent labels these days. And then you can analyze these tissues with the confocal microscope, the laser scanning scope. Um, and so that's the way that we look at this process. It used to be that, that people had to do autoradiography, um, which involved long, long time periods detecting low-level radiation um, in their signal, and uh, would take months sometimes to get results from this kind of experiment, looking for cell divisions and looking for um, uh, uh, cells in the cell cycle. And this can take a matter of a few days. Um, from beginning to end, depending on how we run the experiment. So it's a huge uh, benefit, and it's one of the reasons that this whole field took off in the 1990s was that the BRDU method became generally available. All right, so what we see then is these two regions, cluster 9 and cluster 10, where new cells are incorporated. Here are some of those cells, um, and there's a lot of various stories surrounding this um, from the last many years. Uh, and so some of the questions that we've asked are, do the adult-born neurons survive? Do they actually differentiate into neurons? How do we know they don't get stuck after S phase? And that's the end of it. Um, do they integrate into brain circuits? And can their numbers be regulated? So many, many, many papers related to these. And the answers to all those questions is yes. Um, and so we, we have uh, previously published all of, all of these kinds of stories related to these new cells. And we do know they are neurons. They do integrate into new circuits. And um, they express transmitters that are appropriate for those two cell clusters. And uh, the only thing we haven't yet done is to record from them, but that is underway now. We've, we are developing the first transgenic crayfish um, pr produ that produces GFP um, uh, constitutively, and so we're hoping to get those recordings done as well. Um, and so from all of these studies, one of the things that we have appreciated is the fact that there's a huge amount of evolutionary conservation in what we have seen. Um, my lab was actually the first to show that adult neurogenesis is regulated by the circadian cycle. 
and it was then found very similarly in mouse um, adult neurogenesis. The regulators that are important, um, other regulators, serotonin, nitric oxide, um, uh, all of the regulators that you talk about in the vertebrates are the same in crayfish, uh, the ones that speed up the cell cycle or slow it down. Um, and so the answers to these various questions have been really quite amazing in the amount of overlap that we see in um, the, the systems between the, the crustacean brain and the mammalian brain when you get down to these sort of fundamental questions. All right, so uh, let's see. So a little bit about uh, the mechanism behind how this works in the crayfish. This is a half of a brain. Um, and if you label with BRDU, this is what you'd see. Um, one injection of BRDU or the animals will even swim around in it and if you sacrifice them a day or so later this is the kind of, of, of situation that you'd see. And what we realized quite a long time ago now um, was that um, using a particular antibody against glutamine synthetase which actually labels stem cells in lower vertebrates um, using that we just tried a pile of different antibodies at one point to see if we could see anything. We had noticed these sort of tails. There are these cells in the clusters here and here, but then it has this sort of um, necklace that connects the two or appears to. We were trying to figure out what that was about. Labeling with glutamine synthetase showed that it was all one system. It's connected. And in the middle here in this red box is what we have come to know as the neurogenic niche. This is where the stem cells live. Um, you may notice there's a little hole in the middle, and I'll show you why that's important in just a moment. So the stem cells are living here, they divide, um, the cells migrate, and then um, they get to these regions where they divide at least once more, uh, and then they express transmitters, and you can see them popping out of this, this uh, pathway here into one of the cell clusters. These are cells leaving the migratory streams and going to one of those clusters. Um, so, we discovered early on, about 10 years ago now, that um, the niche is uh, infiltrated basically by the vascular system. And this is a common, um, I think actually ubiquitous finding that, that stem cell niches are always vascularized. And we were specifically curious about that little hole that I pointed out in the middle of the niche. Um, this is sort of a half brain that has been filled with dextran dye that has a red label with it. And you can just see all the blood vessels that go into the olfactory and this accessory lobe and in the middle of the brain. So there are a lot of blood vessels in there. If you look at the niche in one of these preps, here is the cluster of cells in blue um, that, that composes this niche. Here's the cavity in the middle, the, the hole in the middle, and you can see the red uh, dye filtering through. This shows us that this cavity is, is connected to the vascular system. There's blood getting into the middle of the niche. And also, you may notice there's a blood vessel, and the niche sits right on top of a blood vessel. So, so there's a very um, close connection with the vasculature, which we have known for quite some time and is important um, in our current work. So the dynamics then that I'm talking about here, um, can you see this from my, my angle? Oh, well, the, the streams, it's, it's sort of faded out. I don't know if maybe turn, turning lights down. I have a feeling there's been this. All right, so niche, the first generation cells, we call them the first generation cells for reasons that I'll tell you in just a moment. But here's a green cell 
imagine that's BRDU labeled. Here's an example of a niche um, with BRDU labeling. Oh, that's helping a little bit, I think. Um, and so there is a niche and BRDU labeling green. So here's our green cell. As time goes by, if you followed that one cell, um, it would divide. And then um, the cells enter the streams where the cells migrate. Here's a picture of those streams with cells lined up. And go further. And then finally, they end up in one of the cell clusters. And this is now a third generation cell by the time it gets here. And this is very similar as well to mammalian systems. Three or four generations of precursors are proposed before you differentiate into being a neuron. Um, and so the cells basically um, come through this entire lineage and travel towards those clusters. And this is basically then um, the story. The niche would be here. It's not showing up in this picture for reasons that we don't need to go into right now. But these are the migratory second generation cells and the clusters. All right, and the, the model then, first generation cells in the niche, cell cycle is happening. Second generation, they go through another division when they get close to these um, cells, uh, cell clusters, and then um, go through one more division in those clusters. So that's kind of a summary of just the mechanics of what's going on in these brains. Um, and a lot of the pieces of that are very similar to what we see in vertebrates. Um, Okay, so along the way um, in producing those, um, uh, uh, that understanding of the mechanics, we did some experiments that um, revealed something really important. And those experiments involved using two different nucleosides. So BRDU was one, and then there's another analog of thymidine called EDU, ethylene, diamine, da 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 da, um, long chemical term. They are both thymidine analogs, but you can, the, the EDU is detected not with an antibody method, but with a chemical processing. So you can distinguish the two of them um, by using antibodies to detect the BRDU, and then use the chemical processing and put a green label on the EDU. So you can actually label um, at two different time periods and ask very specific questions here. The benefit of our system over a mammal at the moment is that um, as you saw, only the first generation precursor cells live in that niche. And so from our model, this is all first generation. Once they divide, they leave. And they're implicit in what I'm saying is that, in fact, the stem cells in here do not self-renew. Uh, and the evidence for that um, came from these experiments using two nucleosides in sequence. So you'd, you'd incubate the animal or inject the animal with BRDU, and then one day, three days, five days, seven days later, do the same, inject the animal, but then with EDU. So we ended up with this uh, huge pile of data telling us what was happening to the cells that were labeled with BRDU and what happens then once they're labeled with EDU. And what was very clear from these studies is that even when you have a fairly short um, uh, time between BRDU and EDU, one of the clear messages was that these first generation cells in the niche um, do not tend, once the BRDU clearing time is over, 
then the clearing time is how long it takes for BRDU to be absorbed into all the different tissues that are dividing. It's not just brain, it would be the liver in these animals and other tissues that are, anybody going through S phase will take the BRDU up. So gradually it falls below the level where it will be detected. And that's the clearing time. So, and that's about two days in these animals. So if we look then after three days, four days, um, and these cells, the first generation cells, have a very long cycle time. It's about a 48-hour cycle time for each division. Uh, so what you'd expect then is that if you were to see self-renewal, what you'd expect is that once you've produced, put in the EDU as well as the BRDU with this time between, that you'd see stem cells in the niche that are double labeled with both, all right? Because the, the, the first injection was BRDU, the, the, the original first generation precursor took up the BRDU, it then divided a couple of times, and then on day four, let's say we put in EDU, then as those daughters go through um, S phase, they will take up the EDU. And you should still have BRDU and EDU then together in the niche if these cells self-renew. And we never saw that. You have to wait for the clearing time, then put the second nucleoside in, and um, you don't ever get double labeling. And the reason we proposed was that all of the, um, the cells, when they divide, that both daughters migrate away. And we had some lovely pictures showing um, uh, pairs of cells migrating in these proximal regions of the streams. Um, you'd always see cells that are doublets. So that also suggested the same thing. Um, and so we published this paper um, that some of you, I think, may have read. First generation neuronal precursors in the crayfish brain are not self-renewing, which is why we call them first generation precursors rather than stem cells, because the definition of a stem cell is that they self-renew. Um, and so what this created for us was a pretty major problem because the niche contains between two and 300 cells, even in big animals, adult animals. Uh, and so if you imagine that a cell divides um, every 48 hours and produces two daughters that leave, you would expect to run out of precursor cells um, within a year or so. And yet these animals live 15, 20 years, and even the big old adults that we've managed to get hold of are still making new neurons. And so what we surmised from this is that this niche cannot be a closed system in terms of cells, which is the proposal really in the mammalian brain is that those, those neurogenic niches communicate with the vasculature and get hormonal regulation, trophic factors, that kind of thing through the blood vasculature, but that there are no new cells that go in there. Here we've proposed that in fact in order to maintain the niche, um, we must be getting new cells um, replenished from some source that's outside of the niche. All right, does everybody follow me to here? Please stop and raise your hand if you have a question. Um, because all of these sort of arguments hinge to each other. Uh, so, so this was really probably one of the more pivotal papers um, was this realization and realizing then that there has to be replenishment of the stem cells or the first generation precursors. Um, and so, this was confirmed, what we hypothesized next was that if precursors are coming in from a source outside the niche, that if we just give a pulse of, of the BRDU and then take 
niches and look for cells every day for a few weeks that maybe we would see, because some of the labeling is obviously of cells in S phase right in the niche. But if in fact cells are coming in from another source, then maybe they're also taking up B BRDU in that source tissue. And if that were true, then they might arrive with some delay in terms of time. And so on a hunch, we did this experiment where we injected with BRDU once and then looked every day for, um, out for about three weeks to, and looked to see, well, it was every day for I think the first 10 days. Then, then we, we um, uh, looked um, uh, at intervals after that. And what we saw was that we have, oh, and this isn't showing up the background color. This is really faded out. I don't know why. Um, anyway, there's a, a quite a lovely gold sort of color under here. Um, and you can see what the, what the niches look like with cells labeled in the niche. After four days, then you have a, a gap here where there's no labeling. The explanation for that is two things. One is that um, the clearing time is two days. So after two days, we have no more BRDU to take up. And then we have a 48-hour cell cycle. Time. So anybody that took up the BRDU right at the end of the two-day BRDU period would maybe take 48 hours to, to, to finish um, the process. And so we have four days of very nice labeling of cells, and then there's a very discrete gap. In fact, for years, we thought we never looked beyond seven days. We never looked beyond when this went um, quiet because there was no reason to look anymore. But once we realized that there must be a source replenishing, um, we started to ask this question. And what we found is that lo and behold, um, this is a bimodal peak here. So this is labeling of resident cells in the niche when you inject the BRDU. This is the arrival of cells from um, the source tissue. Okay, and this was a really critical experiment. Um, and for those who didn't believe our BRDU, EDU double labeling and said, oh, you're just missing it somehow, or there must be some fast divisions in there somewhere that are diluting out your signal, there were a lot of people who didn't like that experiment um, because of what it was suggesting. Nobody has argued with us about this, and nobody yet has come up with an alternative explanation that having a bimodal curve like this means that um, these cells that you can now see at day eight in the niche had to have come from outside the niche. There's just no more BRDU available at that point um, to label resident cells. So those cells were labeled somewhere else during the BRDU incubation period or injection period. Then they had to go through some period of time, released from their own tissue, um, travel in the blood, and go to the niche. So that was the hypothesis a couple of years ago. Um, based on these various data. We did some uh, culture work initially to try to look at different cell types and to see if any cells were naturally attracted to the niche and found after testing about a half a dozen different cell types that it was the cells actually from the blood. If you take hemocytes, blood cells from the blood, label them up with uh, a product called um, green, uh, no, it's... Um, Green cell tracker, it's from uh, uh, Invitrogen. Um, this is a lipophilic molecule that gets into cells, but then it gets metabolized and it can't escape again, it changes. So it cannot get back out of the cells. And so we labeled up 
cells from the blood, cells from the liver, cells from muscle cells, all sorts of different cells, and add, then put them into a culture dish short term for just six hours with a brain where the sheath had been taken off and the niche was exposed, because the niche sits right on the ventral surface of the brain. And so if we just take the sheath off, then the cells that are in this culture dish have access to it. So then we asked, what happens if we wait um, for six hours? Do we see any relationship between the cells that we've introduced and the niche? The only cells that, that were um, interacting with the niche were cells from the blood. Um, and so this is an example. We saw a lot of cells in these, the vascular cavities, even though the vasculature obviously isn't functioning anymore because um, we've, we've taken the brain out of the animal. Uh, but we saw them in the cavity. We also saw cells that were growing processes and integrating down in with the, the niche itself. And this only took six hours to see um, these things happening. All right, so then the next was to do this experiment in vivo. And we kind of screwed up our courage um, and took blood out of the animal and immediately introduced that blood into a donor. Um, and what we had done, the trick in these experiments, was to inject this donor animal with BRDU. So all of the, any cells in the animal that are dividing will take up the BRDU, the hematopoietic system producing blood cells, the, the equivalent of bone marrow for a crayfish, will take up the BRDU. Uh, and then we wait till outside the clearing time. So wait at least four or five days just to be sure there's no available BRDU at all. Um, and then transfer, take a sample from the donor four or five days after BRDU is injected and take that and immediately put it into a recipient. We have not irradiated the recipient. We didn't do anything. It's really quick and dirty. Throw mud at the wall and see if it sticks. And amazingly, it did. Um, and remember that the hemocytes, the whole blood system in our bodies, in the crayfish, that is the immune system that's producing those cells. And in fact, the blood cells in um, uh, crayfish, we know of three different cell types in the blood. Um, none of them carry oxygen, actually. Um, so there's no equivalent to a red blood cell. Oxygen is carried by um, a, a molecule that circulates in the, in the lymph. Actually, it's not in a cell. Um, and then the three other cell types are the, they are the immune system of the crayfish. We have no adaptive immune system in the nonvertebrates, um, just the innate immune system. And so these are cells that, that phagocytize other, other cells. They blow up and spew horrible enzymes out to kill cells or bacteria, whatever. Um, and so the cells that are circulating think they're a little more like white blood cells, but also, there were, there, there's a small number of cells that look like what we would call prohemocytes, which would be precursor cells. They look morphologically like cells that are precursors in the hematopoietic tissues themselves that are producing the blood cells. Um, and blood cells turn over rapidly, so we knew that BRD would be taken up by those tissues in the process of making new blood cells. And by the way, um, yeah, well, okay, I'll wait on that comment, actually. So what, what happened was, that we looked, and this is first time every time, this is not a fussy experiment. Um, these cells then were labeled with BRDU, and um, uh, some of them, we looked at samples of the blood that we were moving over, and we had a small percentage of cells were labeled with BRDU, indicating they had been produced by the immune system during the BRDU incubation time. And uh, 
then we would look in the recipient animal, and by three days after transferring the blood, um, we could see cells associated with these niches and burrow down in. So within three days, and I'm sorry you can't see my streams here, um, but at any rate, you can see the, the, the labeled cells in the niche. And so we're assuming, since it's coming from the blood, that this is the immune system. Um, from the hematopoietic tissue, that these cells probably originated, and the fact that morphologically now we know that um, uh, that they resemble immature, not differentiated cells that are in hematopoietic tissues, um, and we also have been able to fractionate the different cell types in the blood, and we can do adoptive transfers with just a single cell type, and we've narrowed it down to a small percentage of cells that circulate in the blood that are undifferentiated um, and that probably are stem cells um, that are circulating in the blood produced by the immune system. And that's very interesting because people find a small number of stem cells circulating in the blood in mammals as well. We do know that, and we know that they go to a variety of tissues, but no one has ever um, been able to uh, prove that they're going to the brain, okay, um, other than this stack of papers that propose that that's true, but very hard to get to the source of that answer without um, technical issues that are what the complaints have been. Now, the big, the big challenge here then is, um, so these cells go to the niche, then what? Because there's a lot of special steps these cells have to go through. And by the way, if we do the same experiment with fibroblasts or other types of cells, nobody goes to the niche. We've done this experiment with many different cell types. It's only the hemocytes, the blood cells, that, that do this. So a little later on then, um, they go from the niche. Um, a few days later, this is 10 days after transfer, you can see cells in the streams, and gradually they end up out in the clusters, um, the cell clusters. And what we just published this summer is the fact that if you wait seven weeks, um, which is about the time that we have shown, somewhere between five and seven weeks, that, that cells normally that you've labeled in situ in the animal, um, it takes about four or five weeks before they begin to express neurotransmitters. This is also true in mammals, that it takes several weeks. So we waited a, a conservative amount of time, or a liberal amount of time, I guess, um, and seven weeks after the transfer of those BRD-labeled cells, we had looked for them in the various parts of this system. We found them out in the cell clusters, and lo and behold, they are expressing the appropriate transmitters for those neuronal clusters. So in um, cluster nine, um, these express a peptide transmitter called orcokinin, and in cluster 10, they're expressing a peptide transmitter called sifamide, and those are the correct transmitters for those neurons in those regions um, that normally um, are there. So, um, so the story then is that you can watch these cells that you take from the blood with time go from three days to five days to seven days or 10 days, um, and after time, finally, to develop as neurons. This experiment has been done in mice with the same result, but then with complaints about various parts of the technique. None of those bits of the technique in mammals, most of the studies, um, they floated the cells through culture and biased them first with 
um, morphogens that are known to bias cells towards a, towards a neural fate. So the criticism there obviously is that it wasn't totally natural, that you bias them before you put them into the mouse. So I'm hoping now people will try the same experiment without floating them through culture, just go from one animal to the other. The other big problem in mammals because of the adaptive immune system is that they may really need to um, uh, irradiate the animal so that you don't just gobble up the cells, kill them as soon as they enter the animal because they'll be perceived as a foreign, um, foreign cells. So I'm not sure how the mammalian researchers are going to get over these problems, but um, most of them could be solved um, uh, uh, with changing techniques um, and revising the way that the experiments are being done. So this is what we published um, in Developmental Cell this summer. Um, uh, cells from the immune system generate adult-born neurons in crayfish, and the proposal then, based on all these experiments, is that the innate immune system releases cells into the circulation, stem cells travel to the niche, stem cells divide, their daughters migrate to these two cell clusters, and they become neurons. And I think we have really excellent data for all of these steps. We're now working on isolating the very specific cell type that, that circulates, um, that is the precursor cell. Um, and we are just beginning um, to work with Eva Mizi at NIH, um, who is now a little bit more emboldened about some of these to try to work out some approaches to repeating her experiments in mice um, uh, and perhaps solving some of the, the issues that um, were raised about the human studies. Um, and so she, that was probably one of the most wonderful things that has resulted in my professional career. Uh, two days after this paper came out, um, I had been thinking I would write to her to make, make her aware of our work. And um, I had started to write an email and it sounded kind of weird to me to be doing this cold call and saying, hey, we just published this paper and you've done beautiful stuff to her. Anyway, she wrote to me and congratulated us on the work and said that I, t I fully believe that this is the process that's happening in humans, that we have so much information that suggests this, but that it's been sort of squashed as, as often is the case when you have dogmas, really strongly ingrained ideas like self-renewal, long-term self-renewal of stem cells, um, where there's a lot of money at stake as well. And secondly, that transdifferentiation is not yet an accepted normal process. Um, both of those things have haunted the work in mammals. But everything that I've showed you today has also been shown in rodents and in humans. Um, but it has not yet been accepted because of the various questions and technical issues that have been raised. None of those applied to the experiments we did because we don't have to irradiate um, with anything. And so I guess what this rests on now is um, hoping that people will redo some of those experiments and 10 years later perhaps revising the approach so that you don't have the complaints about the technique. Um, I fully believe because there's so much evolutionary conservation both in these processes and in general in the nervous system. Um, as probably all of you know, the currents underlying the action potential were first discovered in what creature? Anybody remember? Squid giant axon, yeah. And the synaptic basis of learning memory? Aplesia. Um, and I mean, I could go on, list after list after list. When you get a fundamental relationship um, that you see in a non-vertebrate, it may be elaborated or changed a little bit in, um, in a vertebrate, more evolutionary advanced species, but it's pretty rare to, to do it an entirely different way. So the thinking here and what Eva Mizi is excited about is the fact that she thinks that the work we've done doesn't have any of the issues the mammalian work did, but it shows what 
those same mammalian studies showed. So our goal in all of this was to do this well enough and, and convincingly enough that the mammalian folks will get back on it and try again and see if they can settle this debate in mammals. It's crucial. It's really so important to do this because imagine this. There are a lot of diseases that have been associated with adult neurogenesis. Um, clinical depression, which is a huge problem. Um, there's some relationship. We don't know what the mechanism is, but there is a relationship between adult neurogenesis and clinical depression. Also, there are suggestions um, about Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. There are models of these diseases that include a component, at least, that's related to adult neurogenesis. Imagine this. We're doing all this treatment in the brain to try to deal with the, the causes, part of the etiology, whatever the, the basis for these diseases are. If in fact, let's say for clinical depression, um, where um, uh, we can boost the levels of adult neurogenesis by serotonin treatments, and that is a primary treatment for, for depression, if, um, if in fact the problem might be over in the immune system, that the immune system isn't producing enough stem cells or there's something wrong with the stem cells, we're not treating the source of the disease. We're treating the proximate cause but not the ultimate cause. And so it's really super important for the people working in mammals to go back and look at this problem again because if the immune system is the source of stem cells in the mammalian brain, and there's so much evidence to support that possibility, um, then we need to know because it's important for disease mechanisms that we understand that. So that's what we've been trying to do for the last many years, um, is to get to this point with this story and um, have had a wonderful group of people working with me. Jeannie Benton in my lab has been with me for almost 25 years now. Um, so we really work together, two halves of the same brain basically. Um, international collaborators that have, have been part of this along the way. And my current students, whoops, my current students, who are, who are indeed the dream team, um, uh, two of these students contributed um, to the developmental cell paper in major ways. Uh, and they're still in the lab this year. And then my um, support from NIH, NSF, and from the college, Wellesley College. So thank you very much for your attention. So are there questions?